Father, we are approaching your word. We have the wisdom of Christ himself before us, and we ask you to take this most important of all truths to heart. Here's the center today. And we ask for your aid in keeping our minds from being distracted and focusing on the words of our Lord Christ this morning. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Have you noticed how much the Bible talks about sin? I mean, it's a lot. If you read it a lot, you might start to think that sin is a big deal. Something God actually cares about. Well, he does care about it because he is good and goodness is opposed to all evil. And God being infinitely good is infinitely opposed to all evil. So it's a big deal because the Bible says, um, as far as human beings are concerned, it says the wages of sin is death. And in Isaiah, it says, your sins have made a separation between you and your God. Being separated from God, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. Sin is serious. So how does a person know if they're a sinner? I mean, how do you know? Well, the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if you believe the Bible, you know. In fact, the Psalms say, and two different Psalms say there's none righteous, not even one. So I'm in there with that. I'm part of the all, and I certainly know I'm not righteous. So, I mean, righteous? No, not righteous. Honestly, I was never one of those people who had to be convinced I was a sinner. I, some people, you have to, like, talk them into it, like, show them. I wasn't one of those people. <laughs> I do have a bad memory, and I have the same self-justifying, rationalizing going on in my head to try to excuse all my bad behavior, but... I have a long list of sins I still remember, so uh, I didn't need the Bible to know that I was a sinner. I broke my own rules. I mean, uh, forget God's rules, I broke my own rules that I'd set for myself, so I was a sinner to me. Paul says in Romans 2 that people that don't know God's law will be judged by their own standard, and everybody fails even their own standard. If I think you should do this, but I do it, I'm guilty. And that was kind of like me. That was... I, had a, I set a standard for my own personal life and I couldn't keep it. I didn't, I didn't match up to it. So I failed. We all fail. That's how messed up human beings are. In fact, one reason I became a Christian is because the Bible actually offers me, well, then, 40, more than 40 years ago, um, and it remains so to this day, the Bible offers me the only reasonable explanation that I have found in all of human literature and thinking that explains my personal wickedness. The Bible explains it. Nothing else explains it. I mean, it explains exactly what I actually experience as a sinful human being. No other philosophy, no religion that I'm aware of, no science explains with such clarity why I am a wicked person, why I have sinned. So the Bible is amazing in its ability to pierce through all the silliness and just say this is why you are the way you are. You are a fallen creature. You're made in the image of God. You're awesome and you've turned all that awesomeness and used it for evil. That's it. I have this bent towards sin. That's built into me by birth because my first parent sinned, Adam and Eve. Long way back but the ball keeps rolling down the hill. That's why we're sinful. So how do I actually know it personally? Well, for one thing, God gave us a conscience. So our own moral sense challenges um, 
us with our own wickedness and our failures if we have a sensitive conscience now some people have what you might call a dead conscience the Bible calls it a seared conscience they are so closed off to their own wickedness they don't see it anymore some people train their minds to only see evil in other people and justify all of their own actions no matter how cruel or selfish they are it's always some good reason they've got for what they do so conscience while it's valuable is an infallible guide because sin corrupts our own perceptions of our conscience too. We don't listen to it and all of that. Jiminy Cricket, we just want to lock him up somewhere so we can go have fun at the big carnival. Sin actually twists our conscience and interferes with our conscience. So that's not the most reliable guide. But uh, another more effective way is to measure ourselves by a standard. So some kind of definite standard by which you measure yourself. It could be your own standard like it was when I was a young person. Or it could be a higher standard, God's standard. The surest way to measure yourself is by God's standard, right? And that's in the book. That's the Bible. In Jesus' day, one had the Old Testament as a standard in the nation of Israel. So the people he's coming to and talking to in these sections of the Gospels today, they, they know The rabbis had counted 613 commandments. So there's a lot of commandments in in the Old Testament. The Old Testament was all they had. They talked about the rules all the time, interpreting them, which one was more important than the others, and all those kind of things. And it's on this matter of the importance of the commandments that Jesus is approached the fourth time by the religious authorities in Matthew 22 on the day of questions. So he's in the temple. It's probably Tuesday. He's going to be crucified on Friday. But for now, he's in charge of the temple. He orders people about. He does whatever he wants in there. Nobody can stop him. They're afraid of him. They're afraid of his authority and his power. So he teaches openly and freely. Um, Nobody daring to stop him. So all these efforts made against him have to be sly. They have to be sort of under the radar. So they're asking him questions to try to mess with him and get him to be made unpopular or to trip him up. So all the efforts... Started with uh, chapter 21, verse 23, with the chief priests and the elders came and asked about his authority. What authority do you have to do this? And then the second question came from the Pharisees in chapter 22, verse 15. And the third question we looked at last time in 22, 23, the Sadducees. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees really hated each other and they're kind of in competition. So it's kind of interesting how this plays out. The Pharisees fail. The Sadducees come in with their really cool anti-resurrection question, which totally failed. We looked at that last time. And now the Pharisees are going to come back because their enemies have been made to look kind of foolish by Jesus. So, I don't know. Okay. And I'm not even sure this new question is actually a hostile question because one person's asking it and it sounds like it's a real question. It's a good question, actually. So it says in verse 34, that's where we are today. When the Pharisees heard Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. That makes it sound a little conspiratorial, which is certainly possible. But one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question. So this could be, this guy could be coming out of that group or they could be gathering together and this guy on his own is talking to Jesus because I think he's pretty impressed with the answer that Jesus gave to the Sadducees. So one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? 613 commandments, which is the one that matters the most? Which one has the most weight? Which one is the most important? It's a really good question. I don't, so I'm not sure it's a trick. It's, it's such a good question. So this guy's a lawyer, a namikos. He's an expert in the law. Not, he's not a 
courtroom lawyer or a, a contract lawyer or a criminal lawyer, he's a expert in the law of Moses. He's a theologian, if you will. He's an expert in the book. So a lawyer here refers to an expert in the law of Moses. So he's a Bible man. He's an Old Testament scholar. And it's a really good question. Which rule is above all others? And if you want to know if you're a sinner or not, this is a really good question to get an answer to because the most important rule, you can measure yourself by that, right? So whatever all the other rules are, you can measure yourself by the most important rule that God gave to human beings. So that's what we're looking for. There is a standard, there is a measure that really gets to the essence of what God wants from human beings. Something to reveal to us our true selves and something with which we can aspire to as well because if that's the standard, that's what we should be aiming at if we're gonna be the Lord's people. So here it is. Uh, We don't know what the Pharisees expected, maybe one of the Ten Commandments, but Jesus chooses Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, words very familiar to every pious Jew, and then Jesus explains it. So verse 37, he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's from Leviticus. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. If you get those two right, all the other 611 commandments are going to fall out from under those. They're, they're, they're all related to that. To that. So the point's really clear. The greatest commandment, the highest obligation of man is to love God with all that we have. Heart, mind, soul, and if you read Mark's gospel, strength. He adds that in there too. All of our strength, our whole heart, our whole mind, our whole soul, and all of our strength to love God. That's the supreme law. Now think about for that. Think about that for a bit. What does that mean? What is, how does that look? Is it a feeling? Well, John Stott, what, a pretty famous pastor, theologian guy, he, he said, it's to see all things from God's point of view, do nothing without reference to him, to make his will our guide and his glory our goal, to put him first in thought, word, and deed, in business and in leisure, in friendship and in career, in the use of money, time, and talents, at work and at home. How are we doing? (laughs) Is he absolutely first in all those things all the time? We fall so far short, don't we? But that commandment is the one that exceeds all others to love the Lord your God. Our Lord himself declared it the highest good and we're so far from that. I mean, I hope we're making progress in that, but I don't know anybody who says, I just love God with my whole heart, soul, and mind, strength, and everything I do and every choice I make and all my attitudes. By the way, Stott concludes his definition of the greatest commandment with this. No man has ever kept this commandment except the Lord Jesus. And 
if that alone doesn't prove that you need a savior, then you're hopeless because nothing will. That's, the, that's what you can measure yourself by. So verse 40 of Matthew 22 is very important here. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So there exists a very close relationship between loving God and obeying him. So when a man or a woman receives Jesus Christ as his or her savior, a spiritual birth actually takes place, what is called being born again or born from above in the Bible. He's just both those kind of terms for that. A believer actually enters into a relationship with God. When you become a Christian, that separation that sin has put between you and God has been reconciled and he's reconciled to you. He's part of your life. The Holy Spirit actually comes into your being and resides in you. And this new life has this capacity that it never had before and that capacity is to love God for who he is. And so we start to change our whole perception of what's really important and theologians call that the second purpose of the law to um, exalt God like that and to become an obedient people to him so the law shows us our sin that's its first job and as we measure ourselves by it, it it breaks us and it brings us to the savior and then when we're reconciled to God the commandments become something to keep as a way to honor God because it matters to him. And whatever matters to him, that's what we're gonna do. So that's foundational. So you wanna know how to love God, read what he commands. And whatever it is, no matter how difficult or how much it costs you in terms of your own time or things you have to sacrifice or whatever, that's what you're gonna do. That's what you're gonna do if you love him. And this idea that obeying God's commandments is the truest measure of our love it's all throughout scripture. It's just constant. Here's a couple of examples. Romans 13, eight, it says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. If there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. So what's he doing there? Plainly, commandments speaking to our relationship with other people defines how we love them commandments define how we love people I can say I just love you so much I just love you so much and then if I lie to you or cheat on you or, then th- those words are meaningless right the commandments define whether I'm loving you or not it's the very definition of love is to be obedient to God's commandments that's true in our relationship with him and it's true in our relationship with all other people if I slander you behind your back, that's not love. John 14, 23, Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. You cannot love Christ if you don't obey him. 1 John 5, 3, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Why aren't they burdensome? Because sometimes it's really hard. We have to let things go and we don't let, they're not burdensome because we love God. If you love God, it's easy to let things go. A lot easier than if you don't. Love and obedience walk hand in hand. So, to love God is not to feel good about him. I mean, I hope you do feel good about him, but that's not what it is. That's not the core of it. Because there's people that say, I just love God and they don't care at all to obey him. Doesn't, doesn't even, it's easy to disobey him. 
for them. But, but they love God. I love God. No, they don't. Not by his own definition. So it's not stopping to smell the flowers and enjoy life. I'm all for flowers and enjoying life. That's not it. It's not to be detached from specific, clearly laid out um, moral norms, you know. To, to love God is to align oneself with God's moral order. And whatever he says, that's my heart, to please him by being an obedient person. You cannot claim an experience of love for God, spiritual goosebumps, and then cast aside his rules, his commandments, his perspective. You can't do it. To say I love God and not be just gripped by the responsibility to obey is to be horribly deceived. And Satan loves to bring that deception into our hearts and our lives. He does it in all kinds of ways. And some of us are way too ready for that deception. We bite too easily into it. So if you divorce God from the moral order, then your God is not the God who's actually there. The God you're claiming to love is your own invention. A God of your imagination. Let's look at an Old Testament text more in depth here. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10. It's the fifth book of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's a big, long book. Chapter 10. (coughs) There we see not only our responsibility to love God, but why we should love God. And that's what I want to focus on right now. So we're going to um, jump in chapter 10 down to verse 12. I'm reading a New American Standard Bible. Yours might sound slightly different. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him and serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes which I am commanding you today for your good. So the question in verse 12 is, what does the Lord require of you? Fear him, walk in his ways, love him, serve him wholeheartedly. So right away you see the marriage of love for God and obedience, they go together. So why is he to be revered and loved? Moses tells us. The first reason's in verse 14. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heaven, the earth and all that is in it. So God deserves our greatest love because he's God. That's all you need. He's the creator, the owner, the possessor of all things. There's nothing that did not have its origin in him. And to the farthest reaches of creation, the end of the universe, his rule prevails. He made it, he owns it, he governs it. So naturally, the earth is his and everything in it. And you know, there's many practical reasons for obeying God's rules. The end of verse 13 actually points out that such obedience is for our own good there, but our life is better by being obedient. But in truth, it should be enough that it's God who says it. That, that's it. He is unique. He's unrivaled. He's the only God, eternal, all-powerful. So that's the, the first reason. There's another reason. Verse 15, God is to be revered and loved. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them. 
and he chose their descendants after them, even you, above all peoples as it is this day. God should be loved for his choice. Love God because he chose you. God who inhabits the highest heaven, whose presence exceeds and goes beyond the vast expanse of everything we know about creation and fills all things and whose sovereign power encompasses all things, that God chose to set his love on you. Are you blown away yet? Because you should be. It's an awesome concept, made more awesome by the fact that those beloved of God in no way earned that love. I can remember tons of sins. I in no way earned God's love and favor towards me. In no way. Even the choice of Israel as a nation, he didn't choose them because they were special. They were special because he chose them. There's a big difference there. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, it says, You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. The New Testament is full of language like that. Romans 11.5, Paul says of the believing Jew that was in the church, in the same way then there are also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice, he says. He will always have people from the people of Israel that believe in him. He always will. Well, how does he know? He chooses. He chooses them. 1 Thessalonians 1.4, Paul thanks God for the faithful Thessalonian believers, knowing, he says, brethren beloved by God, his choice of you. He's chosen you. Ephesians 1.4, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. So we are favored by this gracious choice of God to be in Christ. Well, what's the proper response to God choosing you out of all the people of the earth to set his love and affection on? Love him. What does John say, 1 John? We love because he first loved us, right? It's, a, it's, it's the only rational response to God setting his favor on us is to love him. God has set his love on you if you're a Christian and that alone is sufficient reason to obey him whatever the cost. We, the undeserving, have his favor. That's why they call it grace because it's undeserved. So he says, Deuteronomy 10, back there in our passage here, verse 16, so circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. How do you circumcise a heart? You cut away, spiritually speaking, all that hardness. and You expose a soft heart to God. You let him speak to you. You let his commandments rule you. You humble yourself. 
It's a plea. Circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. Turn a soft heart to God. Bow before him. Isn't all this enough reason to turn from rebellion against God, from going our own way? Isn't all of this more than enough reason? If God's love has brought you the free offer of salvation, then anything keeping you from that love, just cast it away because it's not worth it. So God deserves our great love because he's God. We should love God because he's chosen us. And the third reason we should love God is because of his very character. Verse 17, Deuteronomy 10, verse 17. The Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. The great, the mighty, the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. God is good. It's it's just that simple. Love him for his goodness. His justice is pure and incorruptible. Can you you imagine offering God a a bribe on judgment day? There's the gates of hell before you and you pull out and you say, uh, there's a thousand bucks if you, uh, you know, we can work something out, can't we? Let's forget the whole thing. God's heart is towards the orphan and the widow and the stranger, the most defenseless. His goodness and his moral perfections are reason enough to love him. To love goodness and justice requires that you love the fountain and the source of goodness and justice. And that's a holy and just God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. Comes directly from God. All those virtues that humans have come from God. Look at verse 19. These verses just really show exactly how Jesus tied the first and foremost commandment, um, loving God with all your heart, to the second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. He says, so show your love for the alien, for you are aliens in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and cling to him. You shall swear by his name. So the basis of our love for God is found in who he is, his, his choosing us, and his excellent character, his perfect character. And there's a fourth reason, his, his mighty deeds, his righteous mighty deeds. Verse 21, he is your praise and he is your God who has done these great and awesome things for you which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons and all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. So the people to whom Moses was speaking, they were living proof of God's powerful intervention in their lives. And these folks had been miraculously sustained in the wilderness for 40 years, right? Manna fell from heaven every morning on the ground. Water poured out in abundance from big rocks. Their clothing didn't wear out. Their shoes didn't wear out. A pillar of fire led them in the places they should go every night. So Deuteronomy was written at the end of all of these wanderings and the people were about to enter the land but they would have a memory of how God sustained them all of those years, his mighty acts. So the exodus became the anchor of Israel's spiritual life, Passover, all the connection, all the great feasts related to their great deliverance from the Egyptians. The people were about to enter the land but they were gonna have all of this behind them. The single most significant event in Israel's history, the exodus. It would be the reference point for many generations, the mighty acts of God. When you read about that in the Bible, that's mainly what it's talking about in the Old Testament. Now today, we look at a very different event, don't we, as the mighty act of God. 
uh, more significant, but not grand. No parting of the Red Sea, no drowned armies, no pillar of fire, no food magically appearing on the ground, just a, a small hill on the outside of an old city where a man is being tortured to death by crucifixion. That's the most mighty act of God of all. That man was the son of God and he died on Friday and he rose from the dead on Sunday. It's the most significant event in the history of the world. So, you know, in the exodus of Israel, the nation was delivered from captivity, but on that lonely cross, he's bearing the weight of the sin of the world so we can be free from our captivity to sin. In the exodus, the law was given to expose the sinfulness of man, but on that lonely cross, the Son of God was satisfying the demands of the law so you will never have to pay its penalty. In the exodus, God's people eventually found their way to the promised land. In the resurrection of Christ, we're guaranteed a resurrection in him where we will live forever with God in the true promised land that has no end and will never fade away in the presence of God himself. So the deliverance of Israel, that was a great and mighty thing, an awesome act, something to remember and talk about, but it doesn't even begin to compare with the deliverance wrought by Jesus Christ, bearing God's wrath on our sin and pouring it on him. When we look as we have for so many months here in the life of Jesus in Matthew's gospel, God in human flesh, God living with man, revealing God to man, when we consider his carrying our sin to the cross, this is God's greatest act, it's the greatest exercise of his love that can even be imagined. The son of God divesting himself so much that he let men afflict him unto death. Isn't that a reason to love him above all things? Who has loved you more? I see people giving their love to things that are so inferior in contradiction to where they should put that love. God should be loved just for who he is. God should be loved for choosing us when we were completely undeserving. God should be loved for his goodness and his justice, the ground of all goodness and justice. And God should be loved for his mighty acts, especially our redemption. If that's not enough reason, you're lost. You need to come and find a savior. The first verse of Deuteronomy chapter 11 kind of brackets the whole passage really nicely, so I want to read it. He says, you shall therefore... Therefore, based on all these reasons, love the Lord your God and always keep his charge, his statutes, his ordinances, and his commandments. Love and obedience, they are one. So when we talk about these things, they're not abstractions. We're supposed to examine ourselves and our affections. What or who do we love the most? You have to ask yourself that. If it's not the being that's the most worthy of our love, then what must we do? Repent of that? Idolatry? Change our minds? Reorient our affections? And start acknowledging his worthiness? Usually I think we fail because we just stop thinking about him. But if we come back to what Moses is talking about in Deuteronomy and what Jesus is commanding, it's the utter worthiness of God for all of our love. And we need to think about that all the time. Every other loyalty, every other love, every other desire has to fall way down compared 
to that central great love for him because he deserves your love. He made you. He chose to send you the gospel and he opened your heart to believe it. That's an amazing thing. He's the source of any good or justice in the world. He made the greatest sacrifice, enduring the most degrading humiliation and suffering so that you could live forever with him. Think about that. Ephesians 1, 7, it says, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. How can we not love him above all things? So don't let it happen. Don't slip away. Don't turn your heart to something else. Give him everything. Start there. And everything else has to fall under that. And anything unworthy has to be put aside. Only things that glorify and magnify him according to his perfect word. Increase your love for God by choosing him, including him every day in your life. Meditating on his attributes. Let the Psalms sing to you. Let the Gospels inspire you. Other masters, other voices, other claims, they have to be shunned. Hated, if you will. Even if that other master is our own deceived heart, we have to shun that too. The Lord alone is worthy of our highest love. Let's pray. God, you are worthy above all things, infinitely worthy. And we as tiny creatures full of sin, what can we do but bow before you and accept and receive this grace that you offer so freely in your son and give him glory. We ask you to transform our hearts from the mundane to the sacred, from the rotting and wasteful world to the things that are eternal and glorious in you. You are the reason for our very existence. And you are the reason for our reconciliation and our future glory. And we stand in awe of you. And if we don't, help us to do so by your grace. Keep pouring out lavishly that grace that draws us to you. We ask in the name of our Savior, your greatest gift, Jesus Christ, amen.